This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. Something about the yeast was helping to stabilize that. It really depended on which yeast you're using and whether you were developing haze from dry hop or not. From what these experiments show, those additions are probably not the best additions to help stabilize haze. This week on the show, to what extent does yeast strain selection and dry hop timing put the haze in your hazies? Hey, I'm Laura Burns from Omega Yeast. I lead the research and development program, and uh, we study all things yeast. Hi, uh, my name is Keith Lacey. I am uh, the research and development technician at Omega Yeast um, under Dr. Laura Burns. I guess we should start at the beginning. What exactly is haze and how do we measure it? Sure. Um, Well, there's a lot of different types of haze. I would say um, we would probably talk about a stubborn haze and a lager that's more um, a subtle haze and and kind of a defect. But then there's also more of that like milky colloidal haze that we've come to expect out of hoppy beer styles or New England IPAs. Um, So haze is really what you would see is like um, kind of like a a smoke or a fog effect in, in clear air where you're not seeing objects on Um, the other side of that particulate. So it's similar in beer. It's really the particulate that obstructs light through the sample. Haze can be measured uh, by multiple instruments. You can just use your eyes. Um, Actually, ASBC methods would basically classify that as a measurement. As long as you have a set of standards and you can really make a a good judgment on haze, um, that's that's totally doable. So the other equipment I would say that is typically used for measuring haze would be um, our, a turbidity meter or an ephalometer. And the difference really in those is whether you're measuring kind of the light that tra- is transmitted through the sample, which is a turbidity meter, 
or light that is scattered, which and that would be more of an ethylometer. Out of the various things that cause haze, which ones are we concerned about here? So what we're concerned about here are the beer's um, own haze particles. And specifically coming from what the beers we have, it's going to be the protein and polyphenol interactions. Um, it's one of the big things to take away from this as well is going to be that it is not uh, yeast in suspension, which is a pretty common thing you hear. Um, that is not what this is. That's not what we're talking about. So for this, you have the uh, proteins usually provided mostly from the malt. We have some polyphenols from the malt as well, but also polyphenols coming from the hops. And those before are complexes um, that are stable and they won't you know, settle out of solution. So when you go for your measurement, um, it's the refraction off of those particles that's going to create the haze. So it's visible to our naked eye, and that's why it looks hazy. All right. Let's hear more about those protein polyphenol complexes because uh, they can create significant measurable haze. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how that works. One of the things to keep in mind, too, it's about the proportions of each. So if you have a ton of polyphenols, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be hazier. If you have a ton of protein, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be hazier. It's how they interact together is what's going to actually form the stable complex. Um, for the proteins derived from all, it seems to be the proline-rich uh, protein, so bar barley hordine, um, and then wheat gladdens is where you're going to be the kind of protein that you're finding. Um, and generally, the size is going to be about less than 40 uh, kilodaltons. Yeah, the malt-derived proteins contributing to haze are different from foam-stabilizing proteins. That's just definitely kind of important to note. Um, and, and also, um, you know, that cutoff range for molecular weight is part of what allows them to stay in solution. Um, when you have, you know, pr proteins precipitating through the boil, those are coagulating and forming kind of the, the tube. Um, but the smaller peptides and proteins can remain in, in the wort um, post-knockout, and those are the ones that are going to help to contribute and stabilize haze. Let's talk about uh, polysaccharides because uh, that's another potential source of haze. Tell us, tell us more about that. Um, sure. Uh, so polysaccharides would be more of the glucans, more, um, more of the carbohydrate fraction of the malt, but also they can be derived from other beer ingredients like um, fruit. So pectin contributes to haze and um, the yeast derived polysaccharides are another uh, important factor as well. There's um, 90% of the proteins at the cell surface are actually comprised of carbohydrate. So they're manoproteins, or um, there's also chitin and a beta-glucan structure to the cell wall as well. And, um, you know, they, these could be contributing to haze, uh, as well as glycogen, if, if the cell is um, ruptured or autolysis occurs, potentially glycogen could be contributing to haze as well. Put things in perspective for us, what's the range of haze in beer? What's typical for chill-proofed beer, hazy IPA, and anything in between? So when we're talking about um, haze measurements throughout this entire talk, we'll be referring to NTUs or nephilometric turbidity units. Um, and these are kind of measured in reference to formazine standards. Um, so when... Um, you're measuring haze in a lager, it's going to be a very low NTU measurement versus a very heavily turbid sample like milk would be a very high NTU measurement. 
So lager is in kind of the 5 to 20 NTU range where milk would be over 4,000 NTU, very high colloidal suspension um, and turbid solution at that point. And then um, between that, we're talking other beer styles, um, a pale ale or a porter um, with minimal amount of haze, but a little bit of maybe malt or hop derived haze would be in the 20 to 200 NTU range. And then um, the more kind of hazier New England styles are really much higher, above 200, maybe all the way up to 1,000 NTUs measuring for that really milky colloidal looking or orange juice looking kind of um, appearance of a hazy IPA. I think any brewer could tell you that some yeast strains make hazier beers than others. The work you did here was really aimed at better understanding why that is, right? Yes, definitely. And some of this was both um, through some of Keith's initial experiments where we were observing some of these dramatic differences in haze with just different yeast, but everything else was staying the same. It was really specific to the yeast. And then other, you know, previous brewing experience I had, a lot of the customers that um, we talked to on, on a regular basis and, and all those kind of more anecdotal you know, associations of strains with hazy beer styles. Um, you know, one of the most popular strains people use for NIPA styles is our um, OIL 011, British 5. Uh, other, other names for it, is, you know, goes by a lot of names, but Juice, London, L3, or uh, YE 1318. That strain has become a very popular strain for hazy IPAs. And um, with some of this research, we're seeing a little bit more about why and it's actually helping to stabilize and contribute to that haze um i'll let keith take it for kind of how we initially came across some of this stuff because it was all really on an on a side wasn't really related to haze we were just observing it in some of his his experiments yeah um i don't know if you want to say what i was looking at but um essentially i was doing some flask fermentations and i was doing different dry hop timings and i kept on noticing even with our british five um, after the knockout edition, it would drop clear. So initially, I thought just, you know, something went wrong. Um, so I repeated it again and, and again. Um, and then Laura had the insight. I was like, well, maybe there's just something here. So maybe it's not something that we're doing wrong. Maybe there's something here. And so then after that, it was intentionally testing that aspect and just seeing what would happen. And ended up choosing British 5 because, as she was saying, that is pretty much the hazy yeast that we know of. And then we also, as a comparison, um, chose our West Coast One or Chico. Um, because it's also very well-known yeast. You know, brewers all across the country and the world have used it. Um, so these are two very popular, well-known yeasts. And so we figured they're kind of on different ends of the spectrum here. So you have your very hazy beers made with British Five and your West Coast nice and clear, crisp beers made with Chico. Um, so for these, this battery of tests that we've been running now for over a year, um, you know, it's been really, there's been other strains involved, of course, but those are been the two kind of representative samples and yeast that we've been looking at for all these experiments. So you essentially developed a method for determining yeast dependent haze. Say more about that. Yeah. So it was roughly based off of, there's an ASBC method. I forget which, which on top of my head, I think it's six maybe. Um, but basically, you know, doing like a uh, flask fermentation from like regular beer. So um, essentially I would try to recreate in miniature um, a typical uh, beer production. So I'd start off um, with brew house worth that we have here. It's all two row. 
um, target about 15 Play-Doh, which is in the realm of like a hazy. Um, from there, do my pitching rate of about 10 million cells per mil. And then my fermentation temperatures, you know, we have controlled temperatures in our labs. So keeping around 70 degrees, really not much, you know, movement in that way. And then for all of them, uh, went for 14 days. So to start off, we would do what I call the knockout edition, but you can also call it day one maybe, or um, what it is really is just, you know, after cooling um, and after inoculation, you just toss in the hops and then there you go, let it go. And then following that, um, we did sequential editions. So one, two, three, four, and then kind of skipped up to day seven. We also did a trial where we tried some of the hops on the knockout, some of the hops on day seven, and also a combination of day four and day seven. So different combinations of these different um, hop editions. And we kind of settled on two pounds per barrel because it's, you know, the upper end for, say, like a pale ale or something other style. And for Nipahs at this point, it's kind of on the lower end. Um, but kind of using that as a baseline to see um, how much haze we could, you know, get out of it. And then, you know, which addition points would create the most haze. Yeah. Um, and just as a side, um, yeah, the the observations that we were seeing in the flask were really correlating to um, kind of, it's a dry hop dependent haze that we're observing. So it was correlating to, you know, the timing of dry hop addition. And when we were seeing different levels of haze um, occur in the beer. But then from using certain yeast strains, we were seeing this dry hop dependent haze was not occurring in, in some of our strains, which we call haze neutral. But in our haze positive strains, we were really seeing this stabilizing effect of um, the yeast on, on this dry hop dependent haze, if that makes sense. Yeah. So then as we're looking at these experiments and seeing the effect of adding hops at different points during fermentation, um, we could clearly see the differences. And so for all these measurements as well, um, we do separate the yeast to make sure, you know, it's not yeast, just yeast in suspension. As we know, it's not. But they're all centrifuged and then decanted and run through uh, a haze meter. So this is not just me looking at them um, and using the tools that we have and our hands to take accurate measurements. And so uh, pretty dramatic um, increases um, almost like linearly for one But the thing is it's specifically 011 or the British 5 versus the Chico where it just really wasn't happening. I would say uh, basically from the first observations that Keith had in the lab, we were just watching um, during the fermentation. Okay, are we starting to... Uh, produce haze with the dry hop addition. And we were just seeing that in the two flasks, comparing a haze positive strain to a haze neutral strain, you would dry hop and you would see a, a nice turbid solution. But by the time those fermentations were complete and you know, you're know you at terminal gravity, um, you centrifuge the, the yeast sample to remove any of the cells in suspension, you're really getting a dramatic difference between the stable colloidal haze with haze positive yeast and the haze neutral yeast were just looking more like a pale ale um, with very little chill haze or very little turbidity to the sample at all. Um, so the important thing I think from those initial experiments is that, you know, we were seeing that if you stage dry hopping during fermentation at different times, we were getting a clarifying effect where, you know, early dry hopping was not producing very much haze at all, but 
is with one of our haze positive strains, as you proceed through fermentation, like a day two dry hop, day three dry hop, day four dry hop, you're seeing that haze start to accumulate and develop and stabilize. And by day seven, when we're doing those late fermentation dry hoppings, this, the haze was really at, a, at its maximum. And something about the yeast was helping to stabilize that. Um, and that's when we started to define these haze positive yeasts because it really depends on which yeast you're using on whether you were developing haze from dry hop or not. You know, most yeasts are described as low, medium, or highly flocculent. I know we've already said that, you know, this isn't a haze from, from yeast and suspension, but does flocculation matter at all here? Not that we've seen. We've actually, I don't know if we want to include it, but we've been running uh, flocculation assays from another ASBC method um, as, as an established method, and there is not really a correlation. I mean, some yeast that are flocculent will create haze, some yeast that are non-flocculent will create haze, and vice versa. So there's not a clear correlation. Yeah, that's very true. And and I think the misnomer is that, you know, you 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 would have heard, you know, early when in my brewing career, when I was making whip beers or Hefeweizens, that you needed to store your kegs upside down and then flip them before you serve them on draft to make sure that haze stays in suspension. Um, this is not that type of haze. It's not a haze that settles out. It's not a, a, a yeast in, in suspension haze. Uh, and it's really, yeah, that flocculation has no correlation to what we're seeing in our assays, um, surprisingly. Some of our most flocculent strains will also produce really nice haze. You also looked at the relationship between haze and terminal gravity. What did you find there? That was more that was more to just kind of prove to that these fermentation assays there there wasn't an impact on the dry hop on yeast health overall, and that we were still getting really consistent fermentations out of these flasks. Because um, I think another misnomer is that you know maybe the haze is created by autolysis or not healthy yeast or or some sort of stress that you're imparting on the yeast by the dry hop. Um, some of that might be part part of the story here, but it's certainly not that the yeast is just dying and autolysing and creating haze because of of um, you know poor yeast performance. All of them. All of the flasks were really great at finishing out and attenuating and, um, you know, there wasn't anything that we could really indicate that it was a fermentation performance issue. It was really, really a, a different thing. Is temperature a factor? I believe you saw different results at different temperatures with at least one kvike strain. Yeah, that's actually an interesting. We, we were kind of saying in this experiment, we wanted to see um, if dry hop timing was really like day one, day two, day three, day four, or if it was really in relation to what percent attenuation of, you know, and the fermentation rate. So uh, we have a haze positive strain, our Voska Vike strain, where as you're um, fermenting at 70 degrees, you kind of have normal fermentation kinetics of, of about a seven day um, fermentation timeline. But if you ferment at 90 degrees, your fermentation is complete and 48 hours. So by dry hopping on day one, day two, day three, day four, day seven, um, really like it isn't about the day of the dry hop. It's about the timing in fermentation. So a day one dry hop 
in a very fast fermentation contributes to the same amount of haze as a day four dry hop on a normal fermentation timeline. So uh, if you're timing your dry hop to develop haze, think about it as you just want to not dry hop during like that croisin or peak croisin within the first 24, 48 hours of fermentation. But you want to dry hop really when you're kind of 50% attenuated at least and kind of finishing into um, your later stage of fermentation. Coming up. A lot of people have pushed top additions like kind of closer and closer to Croizen, doing knockout addition or hop dipping and all sorts of different methods. But from what these experiments show, those additions are probably not the best additions to help stabilize haze. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Support from this episode comes from BSG and The Malt House by RAR. The Malt House is your online source for cool and exclusive RAR malting company gear that you can't get anywhere else. T-shirts, hoodies, hats, socks, glassware, and even gear for your pets. Rep the malt you brew with and look sharp doing it. Take the tradition home at themalthouse.com. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. But the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the Building a Welcoming Workplace webinar. April 19th. District Georgia has a social at Halfway Crooks on April 22nd, followed by their spring technical seminar on the 23rd at Iron Shield Brewing in Lawrenceville. District Northwest meets May 20th and 21st in beautiful Hood River. 
District St. Louis meets at Urban Chestnut Midtown June 2nd. Lab on the Cheap, another Master Brewers webinar June 8th. I can highly recommend the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course, which starts July 8th in Madison, Wisconsin. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Okay, so um, now you've categorized a bunch of your yeast strains as either haze positive or haze neutral. Do you want to give us an overview of sort of um, what you found in each bucket and especially if there's any surprises there? Yeah, um, so this is, you know, beyond just uh, British Five and Chico, um, I was really kind of trying to look at different strains in our catalog and especially some of the most popular strains that are going to be used um, across the country. And so uh, we kind of landed on classifying these um these strains by just their potential for creating a for yeah, sorry creating a stable haze. Um, conveniently, with the 15 so far that we have really thoroughly tested, um, the top five would be fits up really nicely. Um, we have our our uh, 011, the British Five. We have the 061, the Vosk Fike. Um, the 021, the Hefeweizen L1. Um, the Kolsch 2 was a, actually kind of a surprising one. That was pretty interesting. And then we have our British one as well. So those are the top five, I would say. I think one of the more surprising things for me was seeing the ones that didn't make the cut. Um, so initially, you know, some of these were kind of competing and they were getting towards the haze positive classification. But as we've done just more and more tests, um, you know, I can look at all this data for over the past year and just they're not making the cut. So, um, our OYL052, the WIPAL, um, I think it might be Conan. Um, that one is a you know, very popular strain for making hazy beers. Um, that one is not the best for making haze or making a stable haze. Um, another one that's pretty popular has been, say, the High Head Fike, um, which has also been known to, for making some hazy. So, it's, and that's, I think one of the things, too, um, is that instead of just saying everything else is haze negative, which kind of implies that it can't form a haze, it's, we kind of landed on haze neutral just because you could, you know, potentially make a hazy beer, but it's going to be a bit trickier on your end and you have to add a bit more to it. Yeah, that's a good point to make because it's, it's, these are very simplified assays with an all barley wort, um, you know, two pound per barrel hop edition, one single edition and dry hop. And when you take that into your, you know, more your NEPA recipe, you know, you're incorporating oats and, and wheat, which bring all sorts of more proline rich proteins, but also beta glucans and, and other factors that help to promote haze. So the, the yeast may not be doing as much in those recipes um, when they're haze neutral, but you're going to have to work on kind of building out that uh, turbidity from other processes, ingredients, or or just, you know, kind of what works in your, in your recipe, if that makes sense. What happens if you co-ferment haze positive and haze neutral strains? 
Yeah, this one kind of comes from customer experience too. Is uh, you know, people really enjoy our um, Dipa strain, the O five two that Keith was mentioning as a haze negatives or a haze neutral strain, and they also really enjoy our tropical IPA strain, our, our OIL um, two hundred, which both of them have really interesting ester profiles. They both have a little bit higher attenuation than British five. So um, they make for a really good hoppy style beer, but they're not as good at producing haze. So our customers for a long time have been using blends of these strains in their, in their hazy IPAs. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about um, maybe a while zero one, our British five was producing good stable haze in those blends, but um, you were looking for other attributes of the, the other hoppy strains to kind of come in. So we did this experiment just to test out whether the blend was really helping to help promote stable haze. And if we do kind of like a 50-50 blend of a haze positive and a haze neutral strain, we still get the level of haze you'd expect out of kind of like a, a typical haze positive fermentation. So it kind of is a, a dominant trait and it, it kind of helps to complement the haze neutral effect of a, of a strain that doesn't really help to stabilize haze. Um, and it's a really good method for, you know, bringing haze into your recipe without, um, you know, helping to uh, kind of push it to that direction versus only using um, a haze neutral strain and maybe having a little bit more struggles with getting haze. So it's kind of like those brewers that always want to use a little bit of wheat for um, foam stability. You're just going to always use a little bit of 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 um, haze positive yeast to to get a good stable haze. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think for us when we Keith did some experiments, not just fifty fifty, but kind of even less and less of the haze positive strain, and the effect does teeter off. You're not you're not complimenting if you're only at ten percent of a haze positive strain. You're you're starting to see a reduction in haze, but um, yeah, yeast blends do work to help promote haze, which is you know the crazy thoughts in the beginning were why are we using three different strains for one beer? Well, now we kind of have a good explanation for, for why. <laughs> All right. Uh, pH is known to affect haze levels. How much of a factor is pH here? Well, I mean, for that, we still have, you know, some ongoing work on that as well. But um, what I found interesting is that, so for, for what I did initially, um, was focusing on that late dry hop addition, that day seven, because that's usually where we had the most haze produced. So I did a series of flasks and I jumped from, um, I got down to like, I think 3.5 or so pH all the way up to around seven. And so I tried this a few times to see what would work out. And I found, um, a nice range from about four to six four to seven and really tested that a few times and what's interesting is that no matter what your initial ph is um by the time you get to end of pretty much the end of fermentation at day seven um you know buffering capacities and the fermentation you're not going to get much of a difference um with just a day seven addition so even if i start at a low ph of like say four or if i start at a high ph around six um, in the end i'm going to end up with a similar haze uh, if I do just a day seven dry hop. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, I guess the most easy par uh, point in the brew process for a brewer to kind of adjust pH would be at knockout. Um, and that's what this experiment was, was adjusting the pH of the cast out wort from, you know, four and a half to six, and then seeing if that effective 
of pH adjustment really played into haze. And, and like you said, with this experiment in a late fermentation dry hop, which helps to promote haze, we didn't see like a, a range of four and a half to six um, knockout pH having much of an effect on haze at, at, in this system. So um, pH influences like the non-covalent interactions of those protein polyphenols. And there's definitely a good pH range to encourage those interactions. But here we aren't seeing that really knockout pH adjustment affecting the haze in the, in the end beer. Um, yeah, so it's kind of one of those questions we get a lot because people do a lot of adjustments on their knockout pH. But um, we didn't really see that bring a, a huge benefit to the finished product. We were still getting the same level of haze after um, fermentation progressed. Does haze always increase with dry hop rate? It will generally increase as you go up, but the further you go up, you start kind of getting this diminishing returns effect. So instead of effectively doubling every time you double the amount of hops you're adding, you're going to start reducing that to maybe 40, you know, 70%, maybe 50%. Um, so, I mean, I haven't gone all the way up to, I've heard of some brewers going up to nine or 11 pounds per barrel. Um, I have not done dry hop additions yet up to that point. Um, but I did see that as you go to four and start getting around that territory, it will increase, but it's just not going to be as dramatic every time. So you're going to start getting less and less of an impact the more you go up after a certain point. Okay. Um, an obvious question here is to what extent is haze hop variety dependent and how much variation is there across hop processors, hop products, or even from one crop year to the next? <laughs> I think this has been one of the more painful questions for Keith to answer because this involves yeah. a ton of experiments. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I just want to, you know, because we don't have a lot of control over what hops um, we have or a full COA on every hop lot we get, this has been a really hard one for us to pin down as well. But I'll let Keith give a good explanation of some of the results we've seen. Yeah, no, agreed. This is, um, I mean, I understand why brewers ask and I wish I could always answer it for them, but that's not always possible. Um, so what we kind of focus on is, you know, some of the typical players that we'll see um, in hoppy style. So, you know, brew one is a fairly recent one, but also Cascade, Citra, Galaxy. Um, and just kind of playing with those and just seeing, you know, is there an inherent difference between just those different varietals? And we found there is some variation that happens. And also interestingly too, um, is if you go to the different um, hop growers or different hop uh, distributors, I should say, providers. Um, so let's say you have Cascade, Centennial, Citra, Mosaic. You, you know, Cascade will broadly behave similarly, but uh, there'll be some, you know, some variation from one provider to the next. And same with the others as well. Um, some hops like, say, Citra seems to be pretty consistent in creating a decent haze. Mosaic, surprisingly, not as good about promoting haze, but we know flavor-wise that citra mosaic work very well together. Yeah, and um, some of the hops we would we generally see all, all of the same trends where in a haze-neutral strain, we're not getting significant haze developing from these hops, and in a haze-positive strain, you know, we'd see a clear, like that clarifying effect of an early dry hop, but a haze-stabilizing effect of a late dry hop. Um, so 
consistency among those trends, but then there were certain varieties that stood out a little bit. Um, you know, Galaxy is one of them that we always saw very high levels of haze in, in our experiments. Um, Sabro, Pato, some of the other varieties that we tried also kind of always make the hazier um, experiment uh, and really stayed out. But another hop that was like an oddball for us uh, was this Brew One. And we, have, we had heard that it was um, used to stabilize haze in different recipe contexts. And um, so we wanted to test it. And what we actually saw is that it didn't really give us the same trends between haze neutral strain and haze positive strain. It kind of was able to produce a little more haze than a haze neutral strain. So kind of the opposite of what we were seeing with other hop varieties. And then when we uh, did a knockout addition, where we would normally see kind of a clarifying effect in a haze positive strain, we were starting to see more haze with that brew one addition. So this to us drove in a, a more like varietal specific effect. There's something about the hop composition that changes that, that is also um, playing into haze. And, you know, we're really interested in understanding a little bit more about that, whether it be polyphenols, how, how they're oligomerized or, you know, what uh, type of polyphenols are in there, um, whether it's maybe another component, maybe oil-derived component or, um, you know, we, we don't have the exact details of what from hops helps to stabilize the haze. So that was, you know, variety specific effects gives us some hope that there will be more information soon on, on how hops play into haze and whether it's all polyphenol or if there's other components that help stabilize haze. How about variation, though, across hop pro different hop products? Because that's something you, you, you can see, um, you know, you can measure pretty easily the difference between a, um, you know, a pellet and, and some other type of product. Do you have any data on that? Yeah, so we uh, did try a few different things. So we got our hands on some uh, polyphenol-rich pellets and also some pellets from uh, spin hops. And the idea is, you know, behind the polyphenol-rich ones is that if this haze is coming from polyphenol and protein complexes, that if you increase the amount of polyphenols from the hops, maybe you're going to increase the amount of haze. Um, and we still have, you know, more to do on this, but that's not exactly what you're going to see. Uh, it turns out, for at least from the trials that we did, the regular T90, uh, we're still producing more haze, uh, dependably, than just the polyphenol-rich hops. And then another one that was kind of interesting to me um, was cryo, like, say, lupulin, something like that. Um, so for those, you know, following the supplier recommendations, you, you add your rates around half the amount that you would have T90. And so you're adding half the amount of cryo or lupulin pellets, but you're getting more than half the amount of haze. So still want to do some more experience with those as well, but it does seem like cryo um, proportionally provides more haze than a T90 pellet would. Yeah. And that's, that's cool because, you know, cryo is kind of enriching for the lupulin component and the bract is left behind. Um, we're starting to see that, you know, it's not just separated to the leafy material. It's not maybe only the polyphenol rich portion of the plant. It might have something more to do with the lupulin portion as well. Does anything change uh, with multiple dry hop additions? Yeah, so we did um, continuing along the vein because we saw that that knockout um, hop addition giving you know increasing clarity. So we did this our day seven dry hop um, 
our usual, you know, the most haze you're going to get out of like one edition. We thought, what if we did a double dry hop, but they'll do uh, about a quarter at the knockout on the rest on day seven. And we found that that clarifying effect from the knockout actually continued on through the rest of the fermentation. So the samples that were, you know, had a quarter dry hop at knockout and then the rest at day seven had definitely uh, substantially lower haze than just a day seven edition by itself. Yeah. So again, with a, a typical how you might see this play out on brewery, um, a lot of people have pushed top additions like kind of closer and closer to Croizen and um, doing knockout addition or hop dipping and all sorts of different methods. But from what these experiments show, those additions are probably not the best additions to help stabilize haze. Um, and for us, with our customers, a lot of the time we'll get uh, feedback and, and they'll have haze issues with a recipe and we can easily point into like what their hop timing, hop, dry hop addition timing was. And, and that plays out really well um, for the scenario of when we see these strains not producing haze. Have you mainly done this with, with uh, words that didn't have any kettle additions? Um, or have, have you seen any effect at all from you know what happens upstream? Yeah, well, we've we've mostly done um, these with you know um, with no kettle additions, but we have also um, made a few that we that we've also had hot side additions. And actually, uh, one of my favorite ones is a really fun one. Uh, we we did a pilot batch, so I did do about a half barrel of this. So taking what you know we had seen in the flask several times, I um, decided to you know scale it up a bit for us. And so I used work again from our brew house, um, and then used a modified recipe from our uh, innovation brewer Chris Bernardo for a Nipa recipe. And for that one, so of course I'm starting with the same wort, the 100% two row, um, and kept things like my pitch rate still 10 million per mil, temp, uh, fermentation still 70 degrees, still 14 days total fermentation. Um, and so what I did, I did have Whirlpool hops and also uh, at the 50 mark as well. So on the hot side, had, um, I think it was just about over a pound uh, per barrel on the hot side. And then um, after that, going into the fermenters, um, had two different ones. One of them, nothing added to it. The other one had about um, half a pound of hops added at that knockout on the cold side. And, and we let them both go through into fermentation. And on day four, they both received two pounds per barrel of a dry hop to really try to get a lot of haze. And it ended up, um, what we'd seen before in the flasks, ended up holding true um, for this larger scale experiment on it. And so we ended up with a beer made with the same exact wort, same everything, um, except for that only thing was that addition of knockout hops in the very beginning in wildly different beers as far as the amount of haze. So they... The uh, beer that didn't have any treatment reached about 487 NTUs, which is a pretty nice hazy beer. looks a lot like orange juice. Um, the experimental beer with a knockout addition ended up with only 34 NTUs. Wow. So not, you know, crisp and clear and bright like a lager, which would be 20 and below, but still like in a fairly clear pale ale territory. And this is the same beer with just the hop addition. That's the only difference. Uh, one of the things I would just note... Um you know, this is probably more related to like the hop material being in fermentation um, because we've had other scenarios where, you know, you have troop transfer or carryover of hops from the whirlpool leading to a similar effect where you have that kind of clarifying impact of, of hops with those early additions. Um, so 
it's kind of like, an, it's an interesting equation kind of to think about. But um, what Keith said in the beginning, where you want the ideal amount of protein and polyphenol to help bridge and stabilize haze, maybe that composition is different at the beginning of the fermentation. You know, yeast are absorbing and, and kind of consuming nutrients through fermentation. Those are also proteins. Um, and they change the environment of the beer. So in that early knockout addition, that balance may just not be there. Or, you know, in fermentation, yeast is supplying some additional factor to help stabilize that haze. And so a later addition builds stable haze because it's the right kind of environment. And also maybe there's another contributing factor from yeast, if that makes sense. Any final thoughts on what makes a strain haze positive or haze neutral? Yeah, I we have a lot of ideas on this still, but you know, from the beginning we built a lot of kind of models and you know whether the yeast were absorbing kind of the protein polyphenol composition and, and leading to that kind of removal effect, uh, whether yeast were secreting proteins to contribute to haze or maybe even proteases that would break down haze. Um, whether it would be like a cell wall effect where polysaccharides, the mannins and the beta glucans we talked about earlier, whether they were helping to stabilize haze or just the effect of yeast on pH of the beer or non-covalent interactions that help um, build that haze that you're seeing, that colloidal haze. So all of those ideas have kind of been fleshed out with a lot of our experiments. I would say um, some of our blending experiments show that, you know, haze positive yeast kind of can can contribute to haze, um, even in the presence of a haze neutral strain. So in that context, we don't think it's just a adsorption removal of haze or a secreted protease that breaks down haze because that neutral strain would then remove haze through fermentation. So we're kind of more on the line of thinking that probably more of a, a dominant um, factor that the haze positive yeast is contributing in fermentation. Um, and I can't, our leading kind of model is more that it's, um, a stabilizing effect, maybe of, of part of that cell wall polysaccharide component that helps to, to stabilize this, uh, colloidal suspension. I think the main things that we need to kind of like wrap up as far as just giving everybody a good idea of what, what we think our research is helping to help bring better information for making hazies. One, um, there are certain strains that are better for producing hazy, hazy beers. And it's not about the yeast being in suspension and non-flocculent. We've seen no real correlation to that. It's really the effect of the yeast um, in stabilizing that, that colloidal haze, the polyphenol protein interaction. It's dry hop dependent. So even when you're using a hazy strain, one of these haze positive strains, dry hopping is actually what 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 the yeast is helping to stabilize haze with. Um, and the timing of dry hop has a big impact on that. So try to avoid that high croissant first, like initial phase of fermentation for dry hopping, because that's where we see there being less of an effect of, of the yeast in helping to stabilize haze. The better dry hop timing for haze is really um, when the fermentation is nearing terminal or even after terminal. Um, in that kind of last day or so of fermentation, we're seeing really a lot of that haze develop at, at its peak there. 
I think one of the things I would keep in mind for the brewer is that, you know, what we're talking about here isn't necessarily prescriptive. So if you successfully made delicious, hazy IPAs, keep doing your thing. Like you're doing fine. Um, but if you find yourself struggling um, to have a stable haze, maybe think about this as another um, facet to explore and think about. Um, it's probably what I would say that, that people should probably take away from this. And also stay tuned. I mean, this is something that, you know, initially it kind of, we didn't set out to start doing this uh, experiment. And now we've been, work, we've been working on these uh, for over a year and there's still going to be more to come. So as we keep on going, I know we're going to have other updates and other ideas coming forward. So stay tuned to that. That was Laura Burns and Keith Lacey here on the Master Brewers podcast. Also stay tuned for the Brewing Summit this August in Providence, Rhode Island, where you can have a beer with Laura and Keith and take in a whole bunch of the latest research presented by ASBC and Master Brewers members from around the globe. Check the show notes for a link. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. 